2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Anything, anybody want to comment on the conference? I haven't heard from everybody. Anybody get mad or walk out or anything like that? (laughs) I told Brother Brooks, it was interesting, uh, right after the service, Jim Brooks was able to speak. And, you know, we always, I've been hearing, all I've been hearing is about how weak he has been and all the weight that he's been losing well, I'll tell you what, he sure came in strong on Monday morning. And I told him after the service, I said, I think that was the best, the best I've ever heard you, Brother Jim. I said, the trials that God's putting you through are having an effect. Well, later that after the service, we went, was it that day or the next day? Do you remember that we went to Las Margaritas? I can't remember now either. Anyway, we were sitting there. We went to Las Margaritas. Huh? It doesn't, it doesn't go work. There, there's a Strong's number for that. Pardon? Was it Monday? Okay, Monday we went there then. Anyway, I was sitting beside Seth, and Seth leaned over and said, You know what? I think that's the best I've ever heard, Jim Brooks. And so I thought, Well, what a confirmation there. Uh, that, you know, two of us at least. And Mother Mike? Of the conference? You know, I don't know who's making them. All I know is they are going to make them, and I've got one name on the list so far that says they want to set. And if anybody else does, let me know after the service so I can get you a set. Um, I, I just gave them to Jeff. Some of, I don't know if it's all the CDs. I'm, I got a feeling it is. Uh, I didn't look to see, but he's going to be posting them on our website if you want to go there and listen to them. And then maybe uh, they said it takes Jerry a little while, but they're going to get them on Faith's uh, website also. So they'll be out there on a couple, both websites here within a couple of weeks. And CDs are also available, and we'll get those to you. And. Okay. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because he's been under a lot of pressure, you know, get studying those exams, uh, getting ready to hopefully get his a pass, you know, where he could get a, a, a job. And we're still working on that. He's got part-time right now, but, of course, looking for a full-time position. And you would have thought that would not be such a hard thing to do. But in this climate, not, not such an easy thing. So they're still still searching out there and we need to remember him in prayer as well for that okay second peter chapter 2 verse 1 says but there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies even denying the lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, 
bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an everlasting, or excuse me, with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto them that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knows or knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now that's some pretty gruesome sounding things. And just by way of review, you know, at the end of chapter 1, Peter told us how that the word of prophecy, the prophetic word had been given to us by godly, holy men as they were moved or borne along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. In contrast to that, then, he says, but there were false prophets among the people. As these holy men of God were giving forth God's truth, there were false prophets, those who sought to lead astray. And he says then, even as there shall be false teachers among you. Well, little has changed since the days of the prophets. We have false teachers among us today. And you know what's interesting as you read in this passage, it tells us here that even denying the Lord that bought them. You know something, it doesn't say anything about denying the Lord Jesus Christ, about denying his salvation about denying the truths associated with the coming kingdom? It says they secretly came in alongside and they mixed truth with falsehood. And that's ever the goal of those who are um, not living for the Lord, of those who want to justify their own actions and their own devices, and as we read some of these words here, we saw about their pernicious ways or their destructive ways, their covetousness, their feigned words, their making merchandise of you. You're talking about men whose minds and hearts have been corrupted. Those who do not want to fully embrace all the truth. And they got one leg, as it were, hanging out here in the world, trying to hang on to whatever the world has to offer, and yet they want to embrace or hang on to, at least in some fashion, the word of truth, the gospel. And they embrace it in some fashion, but they hang on to those little pet things that will allow them to practice their licentious ways or their lascivious ways, which means to practice their lusts, their desires without restraint. And that's really one of the big problems in the church today. Men want to do that. They want to have, in other words, it's just like our old saying that we're so common and accustomed to, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They don't want to give up. They don't want to forsake 
the things that God calls us to separate from and to avoid. So, having said that, he says, with feigned words, they make merchandise of you. Now, that's really an interesting an interesting word there, feigned words, false words. You know what English word we get from the Greek word here for feigned? It's the word plastic. And it means something like this. Plastic is something that can be molded. And that's what this word here means, molded words. In other words, they shape the words. They say them in a way that twists the meaning. And they manufacture their own teaching. So to say false words here is really not far from the truth. And we use that same expression today in a slang way. We talk about a plastic society, something that's not really genuine. It just doesn't bear the ring of truth to it. It was something very popular back, it started even in in the early 60s, talking about the plastic society. And if I could, if you'll bear with me for a moment, we go back to an old movie that I saw before I committed my life to the Lord (laughs) called The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that movie. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it today. But there was an interesting scene in that movie where Dustin Hoffman, he's graduated from college, just got home. He's looking for a job, trying to figure out what he's going to do in life and figure out what the meaning of life is all about. And he's at this big pool party that his father's throwing for him. Now, he's a very wealthy man and and his father was, uh, his image is the figure of a, the typical executive who was just, you know, money was all that he was driven by. And one of his father's friends comes up to him to talk to him about what he's going to do and what direction he's going in. And he, he said, son, get into plastics. Get into plastics. As if that was where the future was. Now, of course, the writer of the play or the movie, had something else in mind. He was doing a play on words, and he meant it exactly in the way we're talking about a plastic society. Something molded, conformed. And that's what these words are talking about. And so these men, who secretly, stealthily, Jude says, slipped into the assembly of God's people with the sole intention of as Paul said in Acts 20, leading away the disciples or drawing away the disciples after them. What was their goal? What was their purchase? He says to make merchandise of you. Now, that just means they wanted to make money off of you, pure and simple. As a matter of fact, if you will look with me, turn just a couple pages back to the left. James chapter 4. And if you'll look at verse 13. James chapter 4 and verse 13 says this. Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Now that words buy and sell is... The same word used over here by Peter. 
It has the idea of carrying on business. It has the idea of the motivation is to go do something to make a profit, just like it is here in James. And that's all they were after, make money. Now, I don't think it takes too much of an extrapolation for you to just think through on your own in the church today what the most prominent thing in church is all about and all the businesses that have sprung off of the church and what moneymakers they are. Well, notice what he says here concerning them whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not and their damnation or their destruction, as we saw this word means, slumbereth not. Now to slumber not, the only other place this word is used is back in Matthew 25, where it says there concerning um, um, the ten, what are they? Virgins, I couldn't think of the word. (laughs) The ten virgins. You remember there it said they did slumber. They were nodding off. Their eyes were drooping, falling down. They were going to sleep. Here, he says, it slumbers not. That means the eyes are open. They're awake. There's going to be no slumber, in other words, no nodding off on God's part regarding the judgment to come. It's as sure as God's word is. And so then he goes on then, the main part. We've been through this now just by way of rehearsal to tell us what he's, what he's talking about here. He says in verse 4, 4, 4. And he's about to give us some examples here of judgment that was swift. Judgment that came for the very reasons that Peter has just been elucidating in verses 1, 2, and 3. And so he tells us here, if God spared not the angels. Now that word the, there's no article in the Greek. So you would express it like this. For God, if God spared not even angels that sinned. And that gives us the idea that even angels, those of the high rank that they hold in God's government, if God spared not even them, but cast them down to hell or Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, I mean, it's like, it's just building, building. If God did this for angels, what about us? Is there any chance that we are going to be spared that judgment as well? And, of course, the tone you get from Peter's reply is, no way. We would not be spared either. And you'll notice he delivered them, he says, into chains of darkness. That's interesting. Chains of darkness implies to us, in a very strong way, actually, that... It's the darkness itself that's holding them in, restraining them. Now you think about that. Think about darkness in which there is no light. Of course, light is always associated with God. It's associated with his presence, with his word. 
It's associated with his kingdom. And these are separated from that entirely. Now, you just imagine being, as you've probably heard illustrations before, of being in a cave where it's just utterly, so totally black and dark. You can't, you know, you couldn't see your finger if it was this close to your, to your eyeballs. And being that dark, you wouldn't want to go anywhere, would you? How would you want to risk walking and taking a step? And that's kind of the idea that he's talking about. Chained in by darkness like that with no freedom. See, light speaks about freedom and liberty. And this is just the opposite. All because they didn't embrace the entire truth of God's word. And he goes on to tell us then, even in verse 5, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah. Now, if he saved Noah, we know he's talking about the worldwide flood. So the old world would be the world before the flood. And what it says here, he spared not. You you get the idea of a total committed unsparingness. It's the same word that Paul used in Romans 8.32 when it says, For God spared not his own son. God put the full weight of the sin of this world on his own son. God allowed his own son to be put to death, a complete death. He was buried in a grave. And so this sparing not, doesn't mean that he just kind of spanked him a little bit, but it was a full judgment. He spared not. And he spared not Noah, but saved or guarded or protected the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Wow. What a contrast. The world or the cosmos of the ungodly compared to the man Noah, who is described for us here as being the opposite, righteous. Now that tells us again something about the nature of this judgment. There's going to be a division, a separation between the righteous, and that just simply means those, he's talking practical righteousness here in the sense that those who have lived right, the old English word, right-wise, They lived the right way as opposed to the world of the ungodly. And so even though we are here in this world and we live, you know, intermingled with the ungodly, there's coming a day when there's going to be a separation of the righteous and the ungodly, a separation of the wheat and the tares. And there's going to be a day when the ungodly will be punished. The righteous will receive their just reward, be it big or little, or whether it be taken away or whatever. They're going to be judged justly, rightly. And so this man Noah, the eighth, he says, 
and I understand this to be a Greek idiom simply to mean Noah and seven other persons. And it doesn't really mean much more than that. Noah and seven more. Noah being the leader of these eight in his righteousness. And then also in verse 6, he tells us about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto them, to those that after should live ungodly. Or literally there, it's an example unto those about to be living ungodly. In other words, you have thoughts about it, you have temptations, you have desires to want to engage with the world and enjoy their pleasures. Sodom and Gomorrah is a warning to you and me if we ever think like that. It is specifically set forth as an, as an example, a pattern. By the way, and look back at 1 Peter 3 with me for just a moment. 1 Peter 3, uh, forget the verse, 21. 1 Peter 3, 21. Yes, I found it. And you'll notice there, in this verse, it says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Not the same word. This word is more, more the, a pattern, a written copy, something that's made by tracing over. Whereas the word in sample over here in Second Peter has more to do with the idea of a mold. Conformed to, molded into the way of the world and its way of doing things. And so he's made Sodom and Gomorrah that kind of an example to us. An example in that pattern. Unto those that after are about to be living ungodly. Then he gives us another example. Three examples, all from the book of Genesis. Something significant. Patterns all the way back to the very beginning. When he says concerning Lot and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Now that idea there, vexed, tells us that this was something that was going on inside Lot. It was something that was tearing him up, as we would use the word today. <laughs> You hear that quite frequently. That just tore me up. Well, he was tore up inwardly, vexed over what was going on around him day after day after day. The filthy lifestyle. The conversation doesn't refer just to their talk, although I think that it would include that. But it was their whole lifestyle. The lifestyle of the way these people were living was a vexation to righteous Lot. So that tells us a little bit of something about Lot. Matter of fact, he says it in uh, uh, verse 8, he says, for that righteous man. He tells us again, repeats it. This righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day. This was an ongoing thing with Lot. 
as he lived among them, or it says here, dwelling among them in this society, in these particular cities which he chose to dwell in. Now, of course, if we went back to the book of Genesis and we looked at the man Abraham, what would we see concerning Abraham? We saw a division. That Lot and him, Lot and Abraham, they just had too many cattle to stay in one place. And so Abraham gave Lot the choice. And he looked on the well-watered and green valleys that he saw below. And he went after those. Abraham stayed up in the mountains. Not as much green grass there. But it tells us something about Abraham. As a matter of fact, let's go back to Genesis 19 for just a moment. Something interesting that I saw Arlen point out one time regarding Lot, which I thought was pretty significant. This is after well, actually the first verse I'm going to read is during and while. In chapter 19 of Genesis in verse 16, it says, while he lingered The men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. That's significant. The Lord being merciful unto him. To whom does the Lord show his mercy? And then look at verse 29. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham. So we have two things here. God showing mercy. God remembered Abraham. And so on account of Abraham, God remembered his nephew Lot and delivered this righteous man from those about him. Those who would have taken his life had he not done so. And it says there in verse 29, And set Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in into which Lot dwelt. And in verse 30, And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain. Now he escaped by going into the mountain where Abraham had stayed and remained. And his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zor, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. Well, he got to the mountain, but he was dwelling in a cave. That doesn't give us necessarily a picture of great victory on Lot's part. But God spared him. And so when Peter warns us over here, using Lot as an example, and of course he's using the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example, it's a twofold example here. Number one, he spared not the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but number two, the righteous who was there were spared. Now it must be warm. I see fans flying around here. Does it get a little warm? Just a little bit? Verse 8 says, oh, really? Okay. He says here, 
vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Unlawful deeds are not passed over. They are dealt, dwelt, dealt with by God. And so in all three of these examples, he sets them forth as warnings, warning us, adjuring us, as it were, that these things will not be glossed over. And they are warnings concerning the false teachers that slip in among us, not to give sway to their molded words, their plastic words, false words. But rather we are to embrace the pure truth of God's word. Now, of course, that demands then two things. Number one, that we have a knowledge of God's word, that we understand what the Bible is all about, what life holds for us now, as well as the prospect for what's to come in the future, the age to come. He talks about the warnings of this present age in view of the prospects for the age to come. And there is a coming age. There is a coming day that's going to take place upon this earth when all the events and order of this world is going to be changed and this cosmos will be remade. But the physical earth will be remade also. And it's going to be a, a, a time on the earth when the physical changes as well as the governmental changes, which will also result in societal changes, will be nothing like this earth has ever seen. Well, maybe in miniature form, very miniature, <laughs> in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It will be restored one day. The question we have then before us is, are we going to be ready for it? Are we prepared now, living in such a way that I'll stand the test, I'll stand in the day of judgment when that time comes, and I'll be prepared to enter in? As a matter of fact, I forgot to bring it in here. I had a quote from, some, from Thayer, that's who it was, about those in regards to what he, we're talking about right here. It was with regard to Second Peter here in chapter 2 about those, he said, who would not be allowed to enter the kingdom. Now, that's the closest I've ever come to seeing anything by Joseph Thayer regarding kingdom exclusion. And he didn't seem to indicate that these were the unregenerate lost, as we would use the term, but rather these were these false teachers who refused their master who had bought them, denying him, and used the church, used the assembly of God's people to mix false and truth together and draw away those after them purely for merchandise, for the making of profit and gain. Now, mixed in with all of this, with Lot, you'll notice there, of course, you had two things going on. You had the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but you also had the deliverance 
of that righteous man, Lot. And in verse 9, he concludes it by saying, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. It's so interesting to me uh, that how that in this passage, as dark and gloomy as this whole scene appears, you'll see little tidbits here of Peter can't get away from the idea of encouragement to God's people that he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And that's what this picture is all about here. That's what's going to happen when these ungodly men creep into the church, creep into the assembly of God's people with this mixture of truth and error. Temptation will occur. It's going to sound good. Actually... Look back at verse 2. And many shall follow their destructive ways. If many followed their destructive ways, how many do you think were left behind in the assembly? But it sounds to me like it had been but a few, wouldn't it? Many will follow their destructive, pernicious ways. This is no small thing. And this is something that we have seen take place in the church over the, the well, 2,000 years now. 20 centuries this has been going on. And it has continued to grow and grow and grow and grow to the point where what we see in Christianity today and the church at large is basically a picture of what Peter's presented to us right here. That's where we stand. That's what the three measures, uh, the leaven in the three measures of meal is all about. That's what Revelation chapter 3 is all about. When we see the picture there of the church at the end of the age. And so as we see this age draw to a close, we're seeing this manifested more and more and more. And you know, men keep holding out hope of a great revival to take place. Something that will stir the hearts of God's people. And that we might see some wholesale revivals like they saw in the late 1800s and early 1900s. But I have to say from the scriptures, I've got my doubts. We might see some here and there on a small scale, but I don't think we're going to see anything wholesale. Based on what Peter has told us here. Based on what John has given us in Revelation. Based on what... We see in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 13. It's going to be the few who hold to the truth. Now we have but a few here. Not very many. And if I hear correctly, if we could go back 15 or 20 years ago in this church, we had many here, didn't we not? 
but today it's just a few. Pardon? Both sides full in the middle too, Angus tells us. It's not that way today. Now, I would love to see it full again, but I would want it, only want it to see it full of people like you. I have no desire to see growth for the sake of growth as, itself. And as we look at what Peter had to say when he says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. He's talking to those who are discerning enough, who know the truth and have fully embraced it. They can discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of error, as John tells us in 1 John. And that's what we're called upon to do today, to be discerning enough to know the difference between truth and error. And you know what? Discernment is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Go back and look at 1 Corinthians 12. And so if we don't have the ability necessarily, if we're not gifted to the point where we can see the difference between truth and error, we need to listen to those who are as discerning as that. Now, I'm just telling you, I don't have the gift of discernment. It's not one of mine. I've always wished I had it, but I don't. But I thank God for those who do. And when I hear those who I understand with that particular gift calling forth a warning to stay away from this, watch out for that, then I take notice and I listen. And that's what you and I hear together in this body, in this assembly as we've met here together, are to do for one another. is to help, to listen, to speak forth when you see something that's not right. We want to stay, as Peter describes it here, we want to stay, in verse 2, in the way of truth and not vary from it, neither to the right nor to the left, but stay in the truth. He also says there in verse 9, to close this out, he says, and he knows how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. You know, it's interesting also to note here, and it's just kind of something that's been a puzzle to me, but, uh, you know, there's there, in a sense here, there has been an immediate judgment, and yet there's a future final judgment to take place. God judged the pre Noah world with a flood. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He judged the angels. And you'll notice in each one of these, like the angels are being held. They've already been judged and they're also being reserved, it says, unto judgment in verse 4. In verse 9, he says he knows how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. You know, when they're judged now, it really isn't over. There's a day of judgment yet to be faced. And there's going to be a punishment meted out for those who have failed to stay in the way of truth, in the way of righteousness, in the way of godly living. 
And so these are the warnings for us. And warnings they are. But oh, how Peter emphasizes that God is able to deliver the godly from temptations. And I'm going to close with this one verse here from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, where he says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, and by the way, that's the great importance there, we have a high priest that we can go to. That's Hebrews 4 and verse 14. We have a high priest that we can appeal to, that we can run to, he says here. Matter of fact, I want us to look at verse 16. He says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, just like Lot obtained mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I don't have time now. Close my Bible. I don't have time to go back to cover Hebrews 3 and 4 concerning the rest for the people of God. The rest points to that future age. The coming kingdom rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll follow the context of that, those who are seeking that kingdom and who are desiring to live in such a way that they might enter into that kingdom, have a high priest. To which, he says, they can come boldly to find help in their time of need. And if you will practice that, if you will do that in your time of need, if you will go to that throne of grace, the very promise of God's word is you will find help right then. Because he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have such an high priest. We thank you that you deliver the godly out of temptation. And oh, how I pray, Father, that when we are tempted, we would avail ourselves of the resource you've given us. Our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.